0: How does a church with all kinds of backgrounds and unique worldviews come together to live under the authority of Jesus and remain devoted to one another in love? Welcome to the Wrestling With Faith podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Tolliver. Join me as we go on a search for deeper faith and deeper community. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we listen in on Tacho's lesson, why do we gather? So grab a Bible and a notebook and let's dive in. It's no secret that in the 21st century in America, church attendance is dropping across the U.S. as we speak, particularly with this age group, people under the age of 30 years old, and there's all kinds of statistics that we won't get into tonight, but that's a fact. We hear phrases like, I'm not a fan of organized religion all the time. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. We hear these types of things all the time. And the reality is these aren't just like, tweetable phrases that we see online, we're experiencing this all the time as we engage with people, um, perhaps both in and out of the church. And so inevitably, when we decide that we want to be committed Christians that are part of a Christ-centered community, we have to be aware of the way that culture has an influence on how we see community. The question then becomes, well, how do we respond to this? Because if we're not careful, it can have a negative impact, not only on our individual faith, but on the way that we engage with community. So the question that we're really seeking to answer tonight is, why do we gather Why do we gather in a society where seemingly Christianity is not the cool thing? It doesn't make a ton of sense to be intentional and consistent in gathering with other Christians. And if we're not careful, if we just kind of go on autopilot and just say, well, it's because that's what I was taught or that's just what my church believes, that may get us somewhere, but it won't get us to the finish line. So the question becomes... Why do we gather? And I appreciated Josh's communion on Sunday where he began to introduce this question, why are we here? And I want to reiterate these questions to you. Why do you go to church? Why do you wake up early on a Sunday when it's perhaps one of the only days that you can sleep in to drive across town to come and worship God and be with people, some that you know and some that you may not know? Why do I skip out on a gourmet brunch, because we know there's a lot of places to have brunch in San Antonio, and replace that meal with a small wafer and a sip of juice? Why do I drive to a small group or a midweek service on Wednesday at 7 p.m. when that's prime Netflix time? To take a nap, to chill, to recap, to recharge. Why do you do that? Why do you gather? You know, the book of Romans is one of my favorite books in the Bible for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is because of its history. The book of Romans has a rich history. Again, we won't get into all of the details, but I think a brief little history is important to understand before we dive in to our key passage, not only of the series, but for tonight. The book and the church of Romans was consisted of both Jews and Gentile Christians when the church was established. About five years or so later, sometime down the line, the emperor of Rome ordered that all Jewish people be banished from Rome. So the Gentiles stayed in the church in Rome, but there were no other Jewish Christians. So as you can imagine, the culture began to shift. There were all Gentile Christians, and I'm sure they did a lot of, they did away with the Torah, and they weren't practicing a lot of what the Jews knew uh, to believe as true or at least what God commanded them to do. So when the Jews finally did come back, and this was about five years after, as you can imagine, there was a lot of tension and disunity because the Gentiles had now established their culture and their way of doing community. But then we have the Jews come back and go, wait a second. This isn't what we were taught. This isn't the way that I perceived community to look like. So there began to be a lot of headbutting and disunity and tons of tension. Paul then comes along and is answer trying to ask the question and provide answers for the question: how does a church with all kinds of backgrounds and unique worldviews come together to live under the authority of Jesus and remain devoted to one another in love? As you can imagine, Paul had his work cut out for him, but we begin to see a few solutions as we turn to chapter 12 of Romans. And the key focus that Paul has is not only devotion, but love. Let's read verse nine together in Romans chapter 12. I'll say this up front because there's a lot of words there in brackets that aren't bolded. We're not going to get into a ton of the Greek tonight, but what I did do was look at the interlinear scriptures and trying to figure out, okay, what are some of the original words that are translated to English that might provide a little bit more sustenance, or sustenance rather, and significance to what we see in Romans chapter 12. So if you see some added words there, I'm gonna read them. And the purpose of that is so that as we read this passage, we're very familiar with the NIV and I love the NIV version. I think it does a really brilliant job of, of capturing the essence of the Bible. But I think sometimes we can miss out on what the original language said if we don't go back and translate, okay, what, what was the exact word that Paul was trying to use here? And so I did my best to use some English words that might provide some more context and significance to this passage. Let's dive in. Love must be sincere or without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted or committed to one another in love. Honor, value one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, and I love this. Don't be lazy, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality, and we'll come back to hospitality later in the series. Bless those who persecute you and bless those and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, or another way to put that is don't think too highly of yourself, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited or wise in your own eyes. So we won't get to every verse here, but I do want to look at a few as we look at Romans chapter 12 as it pertains to community. The first statement there is sincere love, which is more literally translated as love without hypocrisy. You know, it's one thing to be all smiles and side hugs when we come together on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, but we've all been there where it's, you know, hey, bro, hey, sis, how you doing? And then it's like, did you see what she was wearing? That outfit don't even match, right? Or we we can so easily begin to have these side conversations where it's one thing in community, it's another thing in quiet conversation with our buddy. Paul's calling for the exact opposite of that. Genuine love, where we genuinely delight in one another. Then he calls us to be devoted, or I, I like the word committed. Be committed to one another in love, not in shame, not be devoted to one another in guilt or by force or even obligation, right? Be devoted or you're going to go to hell or you better be at midweek, you're going to go to, n- none of that. Rather be devoted to one another in love, which we all know love requires sacrifice and intentionality and consistency. I loved Dave Hooper's point on that community that the two keys our intentionality, and consistency. A mutual commitment for the greater good. Pillar number three, honor. Honor, the the translation that made most sense to me is the value or the price that we put on something. So when we honor someone above ourselves or when we price something higher than ourselves, what we're saying is you are worth more than me and I'm going to demonstrate that by my devotion to you. So when we honor one another above ourselves, of course, we get passages like Philippians 2 that are reminiscent to this particular passage. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's what it means to honor one another. So these are the three key pillars that Paul is talking to this divided church with a lot of tension, a lot of disunity, different philosophies even on how to create a mutually edifying church. And Paul's saying, hey, here are some solutions. Love must be sincere, be devoted to one another in love, and honor one another above yourselves. So I want to ask you guys, and we'll just have some interaction here. We won't get in our groups, but I want you guys to think about someone in your life, whether that was a coach or a friend, a family member, member, um, a romantic relationship. How would you describe how you felt when someone sincerely loved you, was devoted to you, and honored you? Think about that for a second. Think about how you felt, and you can share that. When someone has sincerely loved you, been devoted to you and honored you. Yeah. Okay. I was like, okay, I feel like at peace I love that where you feel heard, you feel understood, you feel at peace. Yeah, what else? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing when we choose to apply these principles to our relationships, we see God working through these relationships. That's fantastic. Let's get one more, uh, or two more. Sergio and then Nate. Yeah, uh, I felt friendship. Like, wow, this person is becoming or is like my actual. friend. Hmm. Absolutely. And isn't that such a valuable point? Because we can often tell when love is not sincere. You can tell when you're sitting down with someone and they have their own plan in their head or they're just, you know, wanting to get something out of the relationship. It's a very different feeling on the receiving end when someone genuinely and sincerely loves you as opposed to when they don't. It's a fantastic point. Yeah. Last one over there, Nate. I think uh, I felt, I remember feeling overwhelmed that I didn't know what to do with that. Mm. I strongly want to give back to this person mm. I've been treated like this. I, I can't just hold this in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. Where it might feel a little awkward, but then there's um what's the right word? There's this intentionality or this 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 right obligation that man, I need to reciprocate this love that I'm feeling. I love that. Okay, for sake of time, let's move on. What do you think would happen to our community? if love, devotion, and honor were of highest importance? We've talked about this now on an individual level, right? We can all share examples of times and in relationships where we felt love, honored, and devoted to. But what about in community? What would be different about our community if these three things were of highest importance? What do you guys think? Yeah, Carlos, you're a brave man. I consider going for a walk around the block would be a lot more fun. Okay. I love that. All right. Yeah. Doing life together. Yeah. Right over there. Mm. I love that. Yeah. It's a lot easier to be your true self when there's a culture of love, devotion, and honor. Fantastic point. Yeah, one last one. What would be different, or what would come to light in our community? Yeah, let's get two more. Um, Cassie and then Bell. Mm. I love that. Yeah, we we'll, we'll, we stop thinking less I and more we, which we're having Michael Burns on the podcast next week to talk about a collectivist culture. Which maybe we'll have Cassie Steffi on instead. That's a, yeah. Come on, Cassie. All right, last one here, Bell, and then we'll move on. Mm. Absolutely. Where we see love must be sincere, actualized. Where it's not just a theory or a nice little scripture that we like to read when we come together for church, but it becomes a reality in our relationships with one another. That's a fantastic point. You know, I think this is so important for us to stop and think about what would our community look like if love, devotion, and honor we're of highest importance because I believe that everything that you guys are talking about is exactly what God is trying to call us to. That this is exactly what God wants us to build in our church communities. A community of love, devotion, and honor. A community that collectively reflects the image of Christ. We talked a lot about how we can individually reflect the image of Christ, but it's equally important that as his church, we come together to collectively reflect the image of his son, Jesus. And I honestly believe that this is what you want too. When I'm in conversations with you guys about what you want community to look like, what do you want this ministry to look like? And I'm sure the campus can say the same. This is really what we're talking about here. a a community that's sincere, that genuinely loves being together, that values one another above themselves. This is what we want, and certainly this is what God wants. And if God wants this to become true, then I also believe that we have an opposing force working against us. Just as the serpent spoke to Eve and got her to put on the false self, I believe the serpent works in many ways to get us as a community to do the exact same thing thing. So let's look at a few obstacles to this kind of community. The three eyes that corrupt or disrupt a Christ-centered community. Any guesses as to what those three eyes might be? Individualism, all right. Isolation, that's a good one. We're not going to talk about that, but that's, that should be number four. Okay, we're going to come back to, yeah, a little bit of that. Ah, okay. First one, intimidation. There's gonna be overtones of isolation and insecurity for sure, we'll get to that. IHOP. IHOP, exactly. Anyone like IHOP? Okay, so, be devoted to one another in love, value others above yourself. Fun fact, when I was 15, me and my friends had a pancake eating competition at IHOP. And we did the Pledge of Allegiance beforehand. Quick little story, and then we'll dive into this. I did not plan on sharing this. So, so I called IHOP. It was during those seasons of like um, all-you-can-eat pancakes where you pay like five bucks. Well, Juan, what's going on, dude? <laughs> I did that last time. I'm messing with you. Good to see you, brother. He really does like IHOP. He got inspired. Yeah. Anyway, long story short, I called and I said, hey, I'd like to make a reservation. My friends and I are going to have some pancakes. There's going to be a lot of pancakes involved. And she kind of had an attitude. She's like, we don't do reservations here. And I was like, okay. Called back like five minutes later. I'm like, I wasn't kidding about there being a lot of pancakes. We showed up as 15-year-old dorks and had so many pancakes. I actually won. I ate 13 pancakes and... Um, I, I don't know how, yeah, anyway, so that was a fun story. Be devoted to one another in love. IHOP is not an obstacle to community, but intimidation is. So let's get back to the sermon. All right, intimidation, love must be sincere. Okay, what in the world does intimidation and love must be sincere have to do with one another? Well, The fact that Paul calls us to sincere love, I think it's twofold. Number one, it's important for us to love and give freely. Absolutely. We're called to love in such a way that isn't hypocritical, in a way that's Christ-like, in a way that's sacrificial, all that good stuff. Absolutely. But I also believe that sincere love requires receiving love in such a way that is sincere. The reality is sincerity is scary to bring my sin, my shortcomings, my crazy ideas, and of course our gifts and passions and dreams requires intimacy. You know, there's different levels of friendship. We won't spend too much time on this, but I think this is a really good way to visualize it. We are all familiar with the concept of acquaintances, and I want to give a couple of caveats here. Number one, they each have their place in community, right? Like, it's it's inevitable that we're not going to be intimate friends with every single person that we ever come across in community. In fact, we drive ourselves crazy trying to do that. They all have their place, And, oh, I actually gave both the caveats in in one statement, so there you have it. We also can't be intimate friends with everyone. But I do want to take a moment to just briefly look at each of the four here. Because acquaintances we're familiar with, right? Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's someone even in this room where you give a side hug every Sunday or Wednesday night. Oh, you know, good to see you, bro, and, you know, small talk, and then you move on. And that's kind of the end of your relationship with that person. Then, of course, there's casual friends where there's some more common interests and there's activities and concerns. You may meet more frequently than those that are just casual or rather acquaintances, but that's about where the friendship ends, right? You realize that you have some casual or some uh, similar interests and maybe similar disinterests that you guys can talk a lot about, but that's where the friendship ends. Then of course there's close friendships where there's a lot of mutual interests and life goals. We're working towards a mutual goal, but we tend to avoid anything that might offend the other. Right, where we we refuse to go to that next level relationship where we might perhaps step on a few toes We're going to keep it really safe, have a lot of fun together, enjoy food together, watch movies together, but we're going to try to avoid conflict at all costs. And we don't really get on, we don't go below the surface because we don't really want to step on any toes or create any tension in that relationship. Now, intimate friendships are committed to the development of each other's character. I'm going to read these bullet points here. They require the freedom to be vulnerable as well as correct each other. There's a mutual responsibility of openness and honesty, and there's a commitment to working with each other toward becoming better people, or in our language, devoted to discipling one another to become more Christ-like. As I said, it's, it's impossible for us to have that type of intimate friendship with every single person that we're in community with. But I wanna be honest here for a moment. Something that I've seen is that we get really comfortable in stage one and two. And we camp out there. We may even refer to people as some of our dearest friends, but in reality, we don't really even get to that third level friendship, much less that fourth level friendship. And what that tends to do to us spiritually is it stunts us in an incredible way. Because we began to confuse experience with maturity. We began to confuse I've been around the block with consistent help and character development in becoming more Christ-like. And I got to be honest, as a minister, I spend time with a lot of people. But Hannah and I, and she's not here tonight, Eden has an ear infection, be praying for her. She had 104 degree fever today, so um, I sent Josh my notes just in case, but luckily she's okay. But please be praying for her, they're not here. Back to this, we've, we'll often kind of circle back to this conversation and go, you know, it's, it's one thing to have a lot of acquaintances. It's another thing to have close friendships, We can't be best friends and best discipling, whatever relationships, have these one another relationships with everyone, but we can have a few. We can have one or two. And I might even go as far as to say that without at least having one person in your life that attains that level of friendship, one who's willing to correct you and vice versa, one who loves you enough to speak the truth in love, one who creates a safe place for you to bring your true self, we cannot grow spiritually. Without genuine and sincere community, we cannot become more Christ-like. We can play church and have friends with similar hobbies and interests or disinterests. But the reality is, is that if we don't have friendships, relationships that are open to our vulnerabilities, that see the things in our life that are not like Christ, you cannot grow. We can act like we're disciples. We can play church, as I've said. But the reality is, once you think that you don't need community, Once you think that you don't need relationships that will call you higher, Satan has you exactly where you want. And the reality is, is that we can act a certain way. We can say that we're whatever, but just as Jesus needed community, so do you. That's point number one. Point number two, all right? Individualism. This will be much shorter. Be devoted or committed to one another in love. Honor or value one another above yourselves. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. Cassie put it perfectly. If we get stuck in thinking I versus we, we can so easily fall prey into believing that we are wise in our own eyes. Well, this is how I think community should be done. Well, I don't agree with this. Well, I don't. And oftentimes our, our statements can start with like that. was like, well, wait a second. Well, what about the group? What about us? Now, let me say this very clearly. We all have the gift of the Holy Spirit. For those of us who are disciples and baptized, you have the Holy Spirit. This is not a call to not speak up. In fact, quite the opposite. If the Spirit puts something on your heart that may benefit community, we need to have a mutual submission. but if community becomes more about you rather than we, I would go as as far as to say that you are not living in a Christ-centered community. You are not advocating for a Christ-centered community. Lastly, idealism. Never be lacking in zeal, or in other words, don't be lazy, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Isn't it amazing how passionate we get when we have an idea to be excited about? Maybe that's just me. I'm a passionate idealist, like to a fault. And I'm constantly like disappointed because I never re- really reach my ideal situations. But it's interesting because when the idea isn't mine, I'll be real, I'm, not, I'm often not as excited. And when I'm less excited, I put less effort into it. And when I put less effort into it, I become lazy. Never be lacking in zeal. Another translation, don't be lazy. Another translation, put it, don't drag your feet, but keep your spiritual fervor. And this can so easily happen in community when we get infatuated with our vision of community rather than God's. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself becomes destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Yikes. I, I got to be honest. Even as we're in this series, it's so easy for me to fall prey into this. Because, of course, I'm excited about the vision of the group and what I want the ministry to look like. But I have to be honest with myself and go, okay, am I more concerned with my vision coming to fruition? Or is it that I genuinely love and just desire for each and every one of you to grow to become more Christ like? I wrestle with that constantly. And if I'm honest with myself, my motives aren't always very pure. I can often fall prey to being more infatuated with my vision rather than my love for community. And that's something that I need to repent of. What about you? What obstacles get in your way of developing and engaging with Christ-centered community? Is it intimidation? Maybe there's a mask that you've been wearing for a long time. Maybe you've been playing church for many, many years, and you know how to speak the lingo. You know how to have the conversations, but maybe there's a mask and you've allowed intimidation to prevent you from being real and embracing true community. And my encouragement is have a conversation with someone that you really do trust, whether they're in this room or not. Rather have the conversation that helps you to remove the mask And to go on living with it for the rest of your life. Is it individualism? The reality is Paul had some strong language. Do not be proud. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be conceited. Paul wasn't messing around and neither was Jesus. And certainly the Lord. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Has your vision allowed you to become Lord of community? Or does Jesus still sit on the rightful throne of his community in your life? Is it idealism where maybe you're sitting here and you're wrestling with giving your heart to community because the community doesn't reach your idea of what community ought to look like. And so we pull back and we don't give our hearts the way that God calls us to. The way God calls us to is to be devoted in love not because we're perfect, not because everything's fine and dandy, but because we love one another, because he first loved us. I want to close out with this concept of rule of life for the next few minutes. And we've talked about the concept of rule of life as it pertains to our personal spiritual lives Right, We conduct our way, if you're unfamiliar with, with rule of life, it simply means a rhythm of life to help you put God at the center of your life, where you rearrange your life to have spiritual disciplines engaged in throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout your months, so that we can stay focused on the Lord. And that's fantastic. We should have a personal um, rule of life. And in fact, we all have a personal rule of life. It's just a matter of whether or not it's helping you to become more Christ-like or not. But communities also have a rule of life. The monks, I mean, gosh, just just do some research on the monk, man. Like just seeing their devotion to the Lord when they wake up early in the morning to pray, to sing, to just to work on their monasteries. It's absolutely just astounding to see how devoted they are. Of course, other traditions like the Catholics where they have mass and they take the Eucharist, they engage in practices like adoration, the rosary confession, all that's great. That's the uh, that's the school I went to as a kid. We had chapel every morning. Every morning at 8.15 or so a.m., we would go to, to chapel is what we called them. We would sing and pray, and it was an awesome time. We had a communal rule of life that we committed to. Maybe you're like, oh, I didn't grow up religious. Well, maybe you grew up playing football. Two-a-days, right? Two-a-days, that was the rule of life in South Texas, 115 degrees with football pads on. That was insane. But yes, so that was a rule of life for football or cross-country, CrossFit. Right, it's, I mean, I've heard of CrossFit gyms that like, if you don't show up to your 5 a.m. class, like they're calling you going like, bro, where were you? You signed up for the 5 a.m. class. Why didn't you come? There are gyms that do that because they're committed to their quote unquote rule of life. Now, if you go into a CrossFit gym and say, so what's your rule of life here? They might think you're insane and insanely religious. So please don't do that. But the reality is every organization has a rule of life. One that we're probably all familiar with is work right? Your work schedule in many ways is a rule of life, a schedule in which helps you to be committed to the organization. Here's our group. You know, I, I love, I love our group. This is, this is us, right? There's, I mean, I see so many friendships and relationships there, and it's just, it's awesome to be a part of our church. Are we perfect Absolutely not. Are there things that, that we're trying to get better at and growing? Absolutely. Do we have fancy church buildings like this? No, we, we, we don't, right? But we do have family. We have one another. We have the scriptures. And I'm so grateful for our small groups, our Sunday services. I, I think we have a phenomenal worship team on Sundays. I, I, absolutely. Thank you, Hoy. You know, but oftentimes when we're in community, it's kind of like our, our family, right? Like when we're in high school, we begin to notice our traditions in our family that, that work well and that are exciting, that we really love. And then we also see things that we don't love. And we can start looking at other families and go, well, I wish I was a Smith. Man, they do everything awesome, right? And we can so easily do that. And what can happen is that we can easily become critical of our family. Now... As with any group or organization, certainly in our church community, we have to have honest conversations in order to produce fruitful change. So I'm not talking about that. What I am talking about is perhaps a way that we talk about our family that's dishonoring rather than honoring, that builds up or tears down. And I think we have to ask ourselves, does the way that I speak about my family, does the way that I speak about my community build up and give honor, or does it tear down and bring dishonor? Because the way that we speak about community inevitably affects the way that we engage our heart with community. Now, as our tradition, our family, right, our community... We have a rule of life, and I'm speaking more to the Yopro here. I know the campus has their own quote unquote rule of life, but we all have Sunday gatherings where we come together and worship as a community, as a congregation, where we partake in communion to remember the sacrifice of the cross every Sunday. Then we have our Wednesday night gatherings where we come together like this. I love these times where we're able to discuss culture and what we want to build in our young professionals' ministry. I know the campus does the same. It's a time for us to rally and to really think about, man, what are we going to build here in the young professionals. Then, of course, we have our small groups. And I know that we all have different ideas and philosophies and methodologies as to how we ought to conduct church. I'll just say it's, it's amazing that every time, or at least most of the time, when someone comes and visits their, our church, one of the very first questions they ask is, when do your small groups meet? Two things that I love about our small groups is that it gives us an opportunity to build family. Now, I understand there's a lot of us in our ministry that may have a lot of close friends outside of our small groups. And to that I say, dude, that's awesome. In fact, keep those relationships and keep flourishing and budding in those relationships. That's fantastic. But there are other people in our small groups that may not have that where we then have an opportunity to facilitate those relationships for other people that may not have those relationships. In addition to that, it's also not entirely for us. As I mentioned, when people are coming in, trying to build community, trying to start somewhere. Stepping into a room like this might be intimidating. Stepping into a Sunday service with 600 people is even more intimidating. Coming into a group of 10 to 15, that's reasonable. We can build relationships and they can start to see the impact of the kingdom by bringing people into a small group setting. Wednesday night gatherings. And then of course, our discipling in one another relationships. And I'm gonna bring this in for a landing here, but I just want to encourage us to remember why we do each of these. Sunday gatherings, it's a little bit more communal. Wednesday, culture, bringing family in, bringing other people in. But we all know that true change takes place in our interpersonal relationships. It's so crucial to hear the word of God preach on Sunday. I mean, goodness, I I preach for a living. I'm all for the preaching of the word. I think it's powerful to hear it. But, but the reality is if we don't have those friendships that we were talking about earlier, we will not change and transform into the image of Christ. So we try to create a rule of life. I know the campus you guys typically meet every week for your discipling times, for Yopro. I, I typically encourage that we try to get together at least twice a week, or not not a week, twice a month, twice a month, at least, exactly, twice a month. Why, is, is that the law? Of course not but life gets busy. Figure something out that may work for you. Create a role of life that you can then commit to. So why do we gather? Number one, because Jesus is Lord. And I'm not, and you're not. When Jesus called you to follow him, when you made your good confession that Jesus was Lord, not only did you commit to an individual relationship with him, you committed to the community around him. Why do we gather? We're called to love, to be devoted, and to honor one another. And lastly, for the sake of others. We've talked about spiritual formation so much. We can talk about this lingo all day long, but if it doesn't impact those around you, we have to ask the question, what's going on? Why am I here? Is what I'm doing really impacting and completing and carrying on the kingdom work that Jesus began? He himself put it this way, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We can't call people into community if we ourselves aren't committed to that community. On the other hand, if we are committed to a Christ-centered community, the only natural response is to bring others in. I wanna encourage you, I wanna inspire you, perhaps even convict you Where is your commitment and devotion level to community right now? What's stirring in your heart? How is God speaking to you? Perhaps there's something that he's exposed that's taken priority over your devotion to the Lord and his community. Maybe there's an ideology that you've been idolizing over God's vision of community. Or maybe it's just simply time to take the next step and go, you know what? I've gotten comfortable time to bring my true self into relationships with others. I believe that through God and his spirit, that he will create the community that we so desperately want in our lives. My challenge for you tonight is to be devoted in love and honor one another above yourself. Thank you very much. Wrestling with Faith is a nonprofit podcast brought to you by the Mission Point YoPro Ministry. We'll see you next time.